when a wild beast comes in your house, there's two different ways you can deal with it. I have these friends, the Bennetts, they have a cabin up in Colorado, and they will go stay up there. It's up in the mountains, not close to any city, no neighbors nearby. So one day, they were, they were there. Um, it was the morning, time to wake up. And so the mother of the family is, I think, the first one to wake up. But she wakes up, sits up in bed, and she hears a noise in the house. Something's happening maybe in the kitchen. And so she thinks is one of the children got up early. Maybe they're trying to find breakfast. And so she t- takes a few steps down the hallway, and she hears some strange noises, kind of a, a growling kind of a noise. And so she walks a little more slowly and kind of pokes her head around the corner, and she comes face to face with a huge black bear. There's a bear in the house. And maybe I don't know how it got in there. Somebody left a window open or the door ajar or something. But somehow in the night, a bear has gotten into the house and it's, it's having its way with the house. It's eating whatever it can find to eat. It's tearing up the furniture. And the family is in danger. So what did they do? Did they let the bear have its way. No, they decided that the bear is not welcome in our house. And so my friends uh, kind of retreated back down the hallway quickly. You know, the children are all secured. Everybody's woken up. They're, you know, locked themselves in one of the bedrooms and they formulate a little game plan. They say, we got to get this bear out of our house. And so one of them, uh, they open up the window. Somebody sneaks out the window and gets in the car, which is parked in the driveway, and honks the horn and keeps honking it. And the bear gets distracted and wants to know what's going on outside. And the bear went outside, and the house is secure, and the people are saved, and everything turned out okay. So they got the bear out of the house. The other approach to animals in the house, I think, is illustrated by my grandparents. When I was young, we used to go all the time to my grandparents' house, and at the time, it was just the two of them, grandma and grandpa, living in the house. But then the third member of the household was a dog, a really, really fat little dachshund named Poncho. And if you were to evaluate that house, if you were looking from the outside and said, hey, who's in charge here in this household? It wouldn't be my grandma, and it wouldn't be my grandpa. No, Poncho, the dog, he was the real ruler of the household. Because you can see this because they woke up in the morning when Poncho decided it was time to wake up in the morning. They went to bed in the night when Poncho decided it was time to go to bed in the night. They went outside for a walk when Poncho wanted to go for a walk. But if Poncho didn't want to go for a walk, then they would not go. Poncho decided when the mealtimes were. And when it was a mealtime, Poncho got his own plate of food, the same food that the humans ate. He got his own plate of it. And then after the dinner, they're all sitting down, and Poncho would go to the refrigerator, and he would stand in front of the refrigerator, and he would whine and bark and make noise until somebody went into the refrigerator and scooped him a bowl of ice cream, and he could eat his ice cream. Poncho was in charge there in the house. And so there you have it. You have two options for an animal in the house. You can treat the animal as a threat and oppose its rule, or you can treat the animal as a pet and enjoy its rule. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. This week, we're in, next week, we're going to be studying the passage in two parts. And in Romans 6, Paul's talking about a threat that's in the house. And that threat is sin. And just like that bear or just like that dog, sin wants to be in charge. Sin wants to be the boss of the house. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body 
to make you obey its passions. Paul's saying, hey, believers, hey, Roman church, hey, hey, Redeemer church, you who will read these words, are you aware of this danger? Are you aware of the danger of sin? It exists even for Christians, especially for Christians who are saved, who believe in Jesus Christ. There's this this force in your life. It's called indwelling sin, and it's trying to control you. It's trying to be the boss of you. It's trying to conform you to its desires and to its wills. Are you aware of the danger? And that's really the topic of the whole chapter. The whole chapter of Romans 6 is about what are we going to do with this sin that is trying to rule over us? In a certain sense, the answer is simple. It's right there in verse 12, right? Let not sin therefore reign. He's saying, sin's trying to rule. What should we do? Don't let it. Don't let sin rule. Stand up against sin. Have as your ambition the progressive defeat of sin in your life. Change is possible. That's Paul's answer in a nutshell. But as usual, when it comes to things biblical and theological, it's more complicated than that. Because as you dig into this chapter, we're going to see that the warning that Paul is giving is not just about avoiding big sins, you know, staying away from, like, not murdering people and not committing those kinds of sins that are going to get you kicked out of the church, those kinds of issues. Paul's concern is really about how all Christians, all of us, you and, and me, as we live here as Christians, about how all of us are going to respond to this wild beast of sin that's trying to exercise dominance in our lives. He's worried that as we go through our Christian lives week by week, year by year, he's worried that instead of treating sin as a threat and opposing its rule, that we Christians might start treating sin as a pet and even enjoying its rule. Why would we do that? Fundamentally, it's a problem of grace. A problem of grace, that's what we want to see in Romans 6. But let's pray, and then we'll see this problem of grace. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Romans chapter 6, for the Apostle Paul, for his clear and concise teaching to us. It helps us see who we are and what that means for sin. Father, sin is opposed to us. Sin wages war against our souls. May we be aware of the danger as, as a church, as believers. May we fight against the sin that remains in our lives. May we make progress. May we see victory. May we see sanctification, the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. I pray that for my brothers and sisters. pray that you would work through your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I said there's a problem of grace. Problem of grace, what is that? What is that? I want to work towards defining that. But before we can define it, we have to see the context in which Paul is giving this teaching here in Romans 6. So let's back up a little bit and think about what is Paul doing overall in the book of Romans. And the first thing that we can recognize is that Romans is a book that's all about grace. It's all about grace. Throughout the book of Romans, we learn about grace. God's free gift, God's unmerited favor. 46 different times in the book of Romans, grace is referred to in some form or fashion. It pervades the thought of the whole book. We need grace because, as it says in chapter 3, verse 23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, you and me, all of us are guilty before God. What do we do about that guilt? What do we do about that sin? How can we be made right with God? 
Romans wants to answer that. Then a lot of us think naturally that, okay, we have this breach in our relationship with God. We have this problem of sin. And the way to solve that problem is by doing a bunch of stuff. Doing a bunch of good. Doing, doing enough good to outweigh the bad. If we can just make ourselves better, then God can forgive us. Paul's going to say in Romans, no, that's not so. That's not the way it works. Verse 24, Romans three twenty-four. He says that you are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. You don't earn right status with God. It's, it's a gift of grace. How do you get that gift of grace? Verse 28 of Romans 3. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's by faith. It's by trust in Jesus Christ. That's how you are forgiven of sin and justified. Justification is a gift. And so that's Romans 3. And then as you go on to chapter 4 and chapter 5, you you see more about grace and and more about grace. In chapter 5, Paul starts talking about the first man, Adam. Remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? They had that, that, that tree, the fruit they weren't supposed to eat. They ate the fruit. And so he says, in Adam, Paul Paul looks back to Adam and, and says that as a result of Adam's sin, many died. That is to say, everyone died. 5.15, we all inherit the sin of Adam. That's our problem. What's the solution? It's grace. It's grace, the free gift of redemption in Christ, the free gift of justification by faith. Because Paul doesn't want them to be legalists, right? That's a danger, a a danger of trying to to add our works to salvation, of saying that, that God needs our good works, that if we just do more good, then God is pleased with us. Paul's saying, no, grace is is free. Grace is abundant. He keeps using this word abundant. Look at 515. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. But 517, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And again in 520, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see the key word there along with grace? It's abounded. It's, it's abundance. Grace abounded. Grace abounded. The abundance of grace, the more, the more sin, the more grace. It's gonna, grace is going to keep increasing. Grace is going to keep abounding. You could never have enough sin to exhaust the limitless grace of God. That's what Paul's saying in Romans. God's grace abounds. Paul is a gospel-centered man. Paul is a gospel-centered preacher. When we talk about being a a gospel-centered church, we're trying to say that that we want to have the same priorities that Paul does here in Romans. We're trying to say that, that the good news of Christianity is not about what we do, but about what Jesus did. The good news of Christianity is not about our earnings, but about Jesus' wealth. That we are right with God, not based on our merits, but on his grace. We want to be centered on the truth of that gospel. We want to keep it as of first importance at the heart of what we say and do as a church. But gospel-centered preachers and gospel-centered churches have to reckon with the problem of grace. And that's what Paul does in, in, in chapter 6, verse 1. So as he comes through that discussion of grace in chapter 5, and he gets to chapter 6, look what he says, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see that key word again? 
abound. He's already been as clear as he possibly can be that grace does abound. Grace does abound. And so here he's saying, we know that grace abounds. God's grace abounds. So he says, is that a reason to keep on sinning? Are are we going to stay as we are? Are we going to continue in sin? Are we going to keep saying yes to the temptation? Are we just going to submit to the rule of sin in our lives? Because grace is there. Because we have limitless grace. Is that what we're going to do? Can, can sin just keep on ruling in our lives? The problem of grace is the danger of abundance. The danger of abundance. I, I have this friend. So my friend George, he, he grew up in this, this climate of abundance, this climate of wealth. You know, he went to all of the best schools. He, George was given every kind of training, every kind of opportunity you could possibly imagine. But in George's life, none of these opportunities have have come to very much. George is smart. He got into Harvard, but he attended there, and and it wasn't of much interest to him. He didn't really show up to the classes, dropped out after a couple of years with no degree. And since then, his life has kind of followed according to that pattern. He's, you know, kind of one thing for a little while, another thing for a little while, but never really stuck with anything, never really worked at anything, and never really seem necessary. Because see, there's been no, no danger in his life, no, no lack, nothing is ever going to go wrong. His father is a loving father. His father just is going to keep on giving. His father has this abundance. It's all, it's all there. He can keep giving. The father's going to keep providing. There's always abundance there, so why do I need to work? Abundance robs ambition. And that's the problem of grace. Abundance robs ambition. Isn't that true of you? Isn't that true in your life, at least to some degree, that that don't you deep down in your heart struggle with that temptation, the same temptation that my friend George has, to say, Dad's got it. There's abundance there. There's more in the bank than could ever be spent. So I know what I should do. I know know what is the right thing to do. I, I know which direction I should be heading here. But we've already got this abundance And abundance robs ambition. We're content with a lack of victory. Content with a lack of progress. And and so in that, let's just take a quick inventory. Let's just just keep thinking about that for a minute. And and just say, hey, what what is your, think with me. What's your biggest sin struggle right now? Your main sin struggle. If I sat with you and said, hey, what's the number one sin you're dealing with in your life? I'm thinking of like the one you like think of every day, the one that is just there in your mind that, 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 you, that you keep coming back to again and again and again. That maybe, maybe it's a hidden sin that people don't know about, but, it, but it's big. It's dominating your life. The, the, the anxiety, the lies, the lust, the fear. What sin is that? Or maybe what, what about what does sin look like in your household right now? You know, they're at home with your family, with your, you know, are you all getting along? Are you getting along if I watch your interactions with your, with your spouse, your siblings, your children? Would I see love in action in your household or would I see something else? Would I see selfishness, violence, neglect, poor communication, no communication? Are you, are you sinning in your household? Are you sinning by... By not doing things that God commands you to do. Are you, are you neglecting God's word? Are you 
not being generous in giving? Are you not fellowshipping with other believers? Are you not praying? Are you not serving others in the church? Are you not going and making disciples? Or what about, what about those sins that somebody called respectable sins? The sins that maybe don't get you on the careless, the sins that it's pretty easy to just kind of hide in plain sight. Uh, your grumbling, your unthankfulness, your pride, your anger, your jealousy. What about all of those sins? Somewhere in your life, those sins are there. What about all of those sins? What's happening with those sins? What's being done about those sins? Because, brothers and sisters, we've got bears in the cabin here, right? Wild animals are here. They're, they're attacking. They're inside. And are we fighting them? Are we opposing them? Are we doing whatever it takes to get rid of them? Or are we feeding them ice cream? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul's saying, you may be so gospel-centered that you lack any practical ambition to be rid of that sin. And that's not the gospel. By no means, he says in verse 2. This phrase is in Greek the strongest possible way to deny something. Other translations say, may it never be, or God forbid. Paul's saying, yes, grace is abundant. Yes, grace is free. Yes, salvation is without works. But, but you think that means that you don't have to deal with your sin? That's crazy talk. It's crazy talk. Why? Look at the end of verse 2. He's going to tell us why that's so crazy. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? See, if the problem of grace is that abundance robs ambition, what's the solution? What's the solution to that problem? And Paul's saying, the solution is that something's happened to us. Something is different about us. There's this solution, and the solution has to do with our identity. It has to do with who we are. And this, this issue of our identity, who we are, it's so important that he's going to spend the next eight verses unpacking this very issue of how can we who died to sin still live in it. And as we start to look for a solution to the problem of grace, the first thing we can observe in this passage is that, that Paul's really concerned with what these believers know. With what they know. Look at verse 3. Look how it begins. He says, Do you not know? Then again, look at verse 6. He says, We know. Then again, verse 9, he says, We know. We know. What do we know? See, he has in the passage a very practical goal. Right? His goal is practical. Let's deal with sin. But his solution is theological. See, we tend to be a bottom line kind of people. We just want, just give me the bottom line. Tell me what I've got to do. That's the way we think. We want the Instagram sunset with a nice little quote on it. We just have like 10 words maximum. Like, tell me what to do. That's the way we think. But Paul's saying, you don't need memes. You need books. You need truth. You need theology. We need to be a people as a church who are, who are lifting biblical weights and growing theological muscles. That's what's going to help us in our fight against sin. Because what you know matters. God cares how his people think because what you think shapes how you live. See, he wants to give us some truths here. They're truths that you probably know. You've probably heard. The, the Romans probably 
heard, have heard before. They probably, they probably had some knowledge of. But Paul's saying there's knowing and there's knowing. Right? There's knowing like I heard somebody talk about this before. But then there's the kind of knowing that changes behavior. The kind of knowing that results in something different happening. And he's saying you need to know this like that. You need to know who you are. You need to know your theology in that way, in such a way as that you, re, you are a different person. He wants them to know these things like that. What does he want them to know? Three things he wants them to know. First of all, know that you are united with Christ. No, brothers and sisters, in the church, know that you're united with Christ. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then again, verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So you see the word baptism here. He's thinking of water baptism, of, 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 of the sign that we perform as we join the church, that we are going under the water, we're coming out of the water, we're signifying our identity, our, our identifying with Christ and with his body. So baptism is the idea here. But Paul is not writing this as like an instruction list for baptism. The point of the passage is not, here's how baptism works. The point of the passage is, what is that symbol of baptism pointing to in reality? And what the symbol of baptism is pointing to in reality is the reality of your conversion. The fact that you have, have been saved, that you have gone from death into life, that you have been born again by believing in the gospel. That's what baptism is picturing. And he's saying, when that happened, when you were, became a converted person, something happened to you in relation to Jesus Christ. You were unified together with Jesus Christ when you believe the gospel by faith. And, and what that baptism is picturing is he's picturing that you've been joined together with the death of Christ. Look at verse 5. We've been united with him in a death like his. We're, we're tied into Jesus Christ. We're associated with him. We don't, we don't live as believers, as independent free agents that are, that are you know, off doing our own thing. No, we're people who are in Christ. That's our identity. We're people in Christ. We, this is part of the miracle that God accomplished in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ is that we, we as believers became so tied in with Christ that we can be said that when he died, we died. We died with him. We died with him, but that's the first thing he wants us to know. The second thing then... Because we, we say, well, what does that mean? What's the significance of us dying with Christ? The second thing he wants us to know is know in Christ you are dead to sin. You're dead to sin. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He already said, you've died to sin, verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is what the chapter is all about. 20 times in Romans 6, he's talking about this death, this death, this death to sin. You're dead to sin. He's, he's beating this drum of death to sin again and again and again. And here in verse 6, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. What's his old self? Old self, what does that mean? Does it mean like, like I, have, I have two different parts? There's like, like a, maybe like a house that had an addition put on it. There's like the old part and the new part. Like over here I'm old and over here I'm new. Is it like that? No. Paul's not talking about part of you. He's talking about all of you. And, and the idea goes back to Romans chapter 6. Remember we, or sorry, chapter 5. Back to chapter 5, Paul was talking about Adam 
in Jesus. And the idea in Romans chapter 5 is that there's basically two realms of existence, the realm of Adam and the realm of Christ. See, in Paul's thought, the realm of Adam is characterized by, by sin and by death. On the other hand, the realm of Christ is characterized by, by righteousness and by life. And so what Paul said in Romans 5 is that, that all human beings can be categorized in one of those realms or the other. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. If you're in Adam, you're in sin and you're in death. If you're in Christ, you're in life. You're in him. You've been buried with him. You've been raised with him. And see, because Adam, chronologically, in an earthly sense, was on the scene prior to Jesus... We could say this was first, this is the old realm, whereas in Christ is new, this is later, this is, this is the new way. And so the old man here in Romans, the, it's the man that belongs to Adam, the, the old self, who you were before as you were existing in this realm of Adam and of death. He's saying, you were this old man, you lived in this realm, you, you belonged to Adam, you inherited the sin of Adam, that's who you were, but what happened? You made a move. Because this old man, this obsolete self of you, he's saying that old man was crucified with him. This old version of you, the obsolete Adam version of you, was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross. So now you're in Christ. You've switched over. You've gone from this one to this one. You've gone from death into life. Our old self was crucified with him and so, because yourself in Adam was crucified, because your obsolete self is dead, what does that mean for now? It means that right now you have a new relationship to sin. Because Galatians 5.24 says that, that, that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And in verse 6, look at, look at the reasoning. Here's why this happened. Here's why you're identified with Christ. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin, this sinful way, the way of Adam, it's brought to nothing in our lives. You say, what does nothing mean? It seems like it's still around. It seems like I'm still tempted. I still have some influence of sin on me. That's, yeah, it does. But what the word means doesn't mean disappeared. It means rendered powerless. Sin is rendered powerless. It, it, its power is taken away. Sin no longer has power over you. That's what it means when it says brought to nothing. And what happens when sin loses its power? End of verse 6. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. And this new status that you have brings with it a new power that can and must lead to a new way of life because you're dead to sin. You're free from sin. Sin used to own you. Sin used to control you. But it doesn't own you anymore. A few years ago, my parents bought a house. New house. And you know when you buy a house... There's this, this certain day on which uh, a bunch of papers are signed, and you, you sign all the documents, and money changes hands, and, and that's the point at which the house formerly belonged to this person, and now it belongs to the new person. So my parents 
bought the house, papers were signed, money was paid. <clears throat> and so they move in. They move into the new house, so they get, the movers come, they, all their stuff is in there, all their furniture is in there. They're starting to move some things around. They're, they're saying, hey, we, we can make some changes here. Let's paint this wall. Let's set up the house the way we want it, as you do when you move into a new house. A few days later, the doorbell rings, and it's the lady they bought the house from, the previous owner who, who used to live in the house. And unexpected visit, she just comes by and says, oh, hi, I just wanted to check on you. How are things going? And they're like, oh, we're fine. We're just moving in. Nice to see you. And she says, okay. And, you know, they have a little chat. And then she goes, like, oh, all right, that was friendly. And then the next day, she comes back. She comes back again, and she says, oh, like, I, I noticed you hung a picture on the wall. I never hung a picture on that wall before. Okay, well, you know, see you. Have a nice day. And then the next week, she comes back again. And this time, she comes inside. And this time, she says, oh, I don't think you should have painted that wall like that. I think you should have painted it this color. She's trying to control. She's trying to be in charge. A few days later, my father is sitting there. He's, like, sitting on the couch watching TV. And out the window, in the back, in the back garden, some, he sees somebody moving around out there. And it's the lady. She's, she's sneaking in. She snuck, her, snuck around the garden. And then she keeps coming back again and again and again. And she's trying to keep tabs on the house. She's trying to control the house, trying to decide what they're going to do with the house. And my parents, they're friendly people, but eventually they had to talk to this lady and say, listen, listen, um, this is not your house anymore. You sold it to us. We own this house now. We live here. This is our house it's not your house. When you were here, when you were the lady of this house, yes, you, it was up to you what, how things were and how it was decorated, but, but now it belongs to us. You're not in charge anymore, and you need to not come back, okay? You don't live here any longer. And see, in the life of the Christian, sin is like that lady. We used to belong to sin, but we don't belong to sin anymore. Sin doesn't get to make the decisions around here anymore. When sin does come, sin does try to have influence. Sin does try to trespass. But where I come from, we don't like trespassers. We deal violently with them. Get out of here, trespass. That's what we say to sin. Sin doesn't own us anymore. And brothers and sisters, as those who are no longer enslaved to sin, maybe some of you out there are, are discouraged. You're discouraged because man, it, it feels like Though these things may be true, sometimes it feels like sin does have its way. Sometimes it feels like you, you can't but resist when the temptation comes. And I hope if that's where you are, I hope that you receive this passage as a word of hope. A word of hope, just the understanding that if you're in Christ, if you've believed in the gospel, your old self was crucified with him. Your old self, the Adam self, it's dead Sin's power has been canceled. You have been set free. That's hope. That's hope, brothers and sisters, but it gets better. It gets better because when Paul describes our identity, he doesn't just want us to know that we're united with Christ and not only know that in Christ you're dead to sin, but he also wants us to know, know that in Christ you're alive to God. You're alive to God. Romans 6 is not just about death, it's about life. It's about life. Again and again, it talks about life. Fundamentally, the goal here is to, to move us towards life, to help us to see that we are alive, that we have resurrection, that we can live in light of resurrection because we are those who live with Christ. The whole passage is moving towards that. So look at verse 8. 
Look at verse 8. If we have died with Christ, and we have, right? He already told us that. We have died with Christ. So verse 8, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Christ defeated death in his resurrection. Christ has triumphed over death. This is done. It's done once and for all. It doesn't need to be repeated. And because we have died with Christ, as the passage has told us that we have, we can live a new kind of life. We can, in this ongoing way, we can believe. We can keep believing. We can live as we believe that we will also live with him. We can live with him. And this, is, this isn't new in verse 8. We saw it back in verse 5. In verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, that's who you are. You're a resurrected person. You're not a slave to sin. You're someone who's alive. You're someone who's been resurrected with Christ. That's who you are. Before that, we saw it in verse 4, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You you see the the purpose clause there, the the structure, it says in order that it's saying this is why we're identified with Christ. This is why in Christ we're dead to sin. Here's the reason for that. And the reason isn't so, okay, we're baptized in Christ so that we can do a bunch of good works and earn our salvation. It's not that. And it's not so, oh, we we can do this so we earn a bunch of heavenly blessings one day. No, he's saying this is looking at right now, our life right now. And he's saying that what's happened to us in Christ in the past, as we've been identified with Christ and we've died with Christ, he's saying that has transformative effect on our life right now. This is we too might walk in newness of life. And again, there's that contrast. That contrast that we used to be in Adam. We used to, when we were in Adam, we used to live our life in the way of Adam. We used to go around and, and, and walk according to the course of this world. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that's how we walked. But he's saying, because we've made this move, because we've transferred from Adam, now we're in Christ. We can walk. We don't have to walk like that. We don't have to live like we're in Adam. We can walk in newness of life. We can walk according to this resurrection life. We can can live now. We can act as those who are not dead but who are alive. Live like alive people. That's what he's saying. You are alive, so live like you're alive. Walk in newness of life. Walk differently now. Maybe that there's some of you that are here today who who are not Christians. You have not believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have not confessed your sin to him. You have not asked for his forgiveness and and, and for his substitution in your place. If that's you, I want you to know that this passage is the good news that you need. See, we live in this day and age in which just more and more people will report that this is their struggle. They, They struggle to feel fully alive. They, they, they go around feeling discouraged, feeling lonely, feeling withdrawn, feeling separated. It's as if the, the stench of death hangs on them even as they are living. And, and Paul has an explanation for that. He's saying that's true to the extent that we belong to the realm of Adam, the extent to which we're letting sin reign in our lives we ought not to expect to feel fully alive, to, to, to have a life that's characterized by vibrancy and by, by newness. 
But this life is offered to us. Real life, really living, truly being alive, being resurrected people, that's available. That's available to everyone. That is good news, brothers and sisters. That's good news, friends. You can trust in Christ and have that life now, today. And look what he says in, in the verse, in verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, and then look at the words, just as... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So it's saying, here's this glory of the Father. Christ was raised from the dead by an incredible act of the glorious power of the one almighty God. And he's saying, just as that, that same glorious power that raised Christ from the dead, he's saying, that's the power that's brought you from death into life and lets you walk in a new life. It's the same power, the same glory that you get now, that you live according to now. That's what just as means. Saying you get that power now. You're alive people now. In chapter 8, verse 11, Paul says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This incredibly glorious God has an incredible future planned for his people, and we can taste that future now as we walk in this new life through the power of the spirit. That's who you are. You are in Christ. You are dead to sin. You are delivered an incredible new life now by the very power of God. So, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. Abundance robs ambition. Yes. That's a danger. It's a danger. That's the problem of grace. And so with full confidence that we're saved by faith alone, how can we maintain our ambition to keep laying siege to the castle of indwelling sin, to to keep starving out that sin, to keep saying no to temptation, to, to keep the, the fuel off the fire of sin, to keep increasing in victory over sin. How do we do that, though we have this abundance? As we go next week in the, the latter part of the chapter, we'll see more on this. We've already seen Paul's first solution to the problem of grace, and that's that identity rules ambition. Identity rules ambition. Abundance doesn't have to rob Ambition, because who you see yourself as will determine what you aspire to. And so then we come to 611. And when we get to 611, we're going to find the first command, the first imperative, not only in chapter 6, but in all of the book of Romans up to this point, because Paul's been giving a lot of theology, and now it's time to apply that theology. And here's the application. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Of course, he's already established that in actual fact, you actually are dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. So now you're being called upon to think of yourself accordingly, to present yourself as what you really are. This, this consider now, think about consider. This is not like, the idea of this term is not like something where I, I've got some crazy idea that I'm choosing to act as if it's true based, you know, against all the evidence. Like, I, I consider myself to be 
an awesome volleyball player. It's like, well, I could consider myself that, but it's not true, right? That's not what the idea of this word is. This consider, it's actually an accounting term. It was used in accounting. It's the idea of gathering up all of the details and based on all of the facts coming to the right conclusion. It's kind of like if you were creating a business plan and you wanted to make sure all the numbers were right and you spent six months putting together this spreadsheet and you very carefully calculated all of the costs and all of the the inflows and all of the outflows and whatever accountants do. I'm not really that financially minded myself. But, But you got all the stuff together and, and you checked all the figures and you got to that bottom line and said, yes, this is the, the total. This is the conclusion. This is the right answer. That's the idea of this term. And he's saying that, that that's what we're being called to do with respect to our identity. We're, we're being called to, to regularly, routinely, instead of letting sin have its way, we're being called to a, a different path, which is to do the math, to consider the options, and to, to decide who you are. We already know who you are in reality. Will you act accordingly? Will you act like who you are? Or will you play the old man, act like the obsolete man, act like Adam? Dead to sin, alive to God, that's who you are. You're dead to sin, you're alive to God. Not, not purposely swimming upriver is the same thing as deciding to swim downriver. That's why Paul has labored. He's worked so hard to show us who we are together with Christ Jesus because he would have us let our identity rule our ambition and let our identity fuel our ambition. Remember my friends with the bear in the cabin? The bear in the cabin? What, what if those friends, knowing that the bear was there, knowing that the bear was a threat, what, what if they had just walked down the hallway and, and just kind of gone about their day? With the bear there. Okay, here, bear, you're over here. Let's get, get our cereal, make our breakfast. Just go about our day with the bear right there in the house. What if they had done that? I'm going to suggest to you that if they had acted like that, there would be an identity problem involved. There'd be probably other problems too. But there's an identity problem because if a bear is in the kitchen and you just walk in there, you are considering yourself to be something. You're considering yourself, in that case, to be bear food, right? You are acting like you are bear food. With that identity, you're submitting then to the reign of the bear. The bear is eating the chips. He's eating the cake. He's eating the couch. He may as well just eat us too. That's your mindset. We don't want to cause trouble. But see, my friends identified as something different. They said, we are not people who have to be eaten by a bear, we, we are people with an ambition to survive the bear. We have resources available to us to escape from the bear. And so they did. They escaped. In Redeemer Church, when it comes to sin, make sure abundance hasn't robbed your ambition. Whatever that sin is, whether it's violent crimes fleshly lusts, whether it's grumbling hearts, whatever the sin is, make sure abundance hasn't sapped your ambition. Instead of ignoring sin, instead of playing with sin, instead of treating sin like a pet, letting sin reign in our mortal bodies, brothers and sisters, fight the temptation to sin with your identity in Christ. Oppose the rule of sin in your life's redeemer. Let's be a people of ambition. 
Ambition to walk in newness of life because we've been raised with Christ. Ambition to act dead to sin because we are dead to sin. Ambition to act like a new man because we've crucified the old man. Act like sin has no power because it does not. Let's have ambition to not continue in sin, assuming that grace will abound. Let's have ambition to look like Christ because we are in Christ. So when the temptation comes, analyze all the facts and make this calculation. I am dead to sin and I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who by your glorious power has brought us from death to life. We have died with Christ. We have been raised with him. And it's all by your grace. It's all by your grace. We've done nothing to earn it. We've done nothing to merit it. But by your grace, you have saved us, Lord. May we not be those who pervert that grace into an excuse to sin. If we've done that, and we all have in some way, may we repent of that. Father, help us to see our sin. It's so deceptive. It, it, it wants to rule over us in such subtle ways. Father, for me, for my brothers and sisters, may we, may we see that sin. And may we not ignore it. May we not play with it. But let, let us fight against it. Let us have ambition to defeat it. Father, may we change by the power of your gospel. May we walk in newness of life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.